Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And a quick word of caution before we get going that this episode is going to talk a lot about hard drug use, specifically heroin use, abuse, and recovery. So if that is a topic that you would prefer to avoid listening to for whatever reason, totally fine. Uh, you have been warned, and let's get into this really serious issue that has just skyrocketed in recent years. Yeah, heroin use has really taken off in the U.S. for a lot of sort of uh, intermingling reasons, um, and it has really taken off, too, among women in this country. And so we thought it was time, as almost depressing and sad as this topic can be, we thought that it was really important to address it because we want to f- better understand and we want you to better understand what is behind more women abusing heroin. And it's specifically white women, and it's something... Two that's been in the news so much. Um, President Obama really launched an anti-heroin uh, initiative uh, some months back, and I remember hearing, you know, all of these press conferences about it, and um, a lot of politicians talking about it, both on the national scale and also on the state level. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was a little mystified, thinking, heroin? Why? Okay, what what's behind this? What's going on? It's back. We're having a 90s revival. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like such an extreme drug. And this really, you know, points to my ignorance about the issue, because I did not understand uh, the very practical, unfortunately, reason why there is a heroin epidemic happening. Yeah, so let's hit you with some numbers. Basically, heroin use in this country has increased across all demographics. Uh, three out of a thousand Americans said that they had used heroin in 2013, uh, which is the most recent year that data is available, up from one in a thousand a decade earlier. And while it remains highest among men, people 18 to 25, people who make less than 20K a year, people living in cities, and people who are uninsured or on Medicaid, the greatest increases have been seen among people who've historically had lower rates of use. Specifically, it has doubled among women and more than doubled among non-Hispanic white people. And this isn't just an issue of people trying heroin once and then walking away. Um, as I think a lot of people know, heroin is extremely addictive. Nicotine is the only drug that we know of that is more addictive, in fact, than heroin. And heroin abuse and dependency jumped 35.7% uh, since 2008 to 2010. And about a quarter of people who try heroin just just that once, perhaps thinking, uh, will become dependent on it. And that means we're having more overdoses and more deaths from overdoses. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in 2002... Uh, there were just over 2,000 overdose deaths, and that jumped to more than 10,000 in 2014. And if you look at particular states, you can see uh, where heroin is just gripping towns. And West Virginia in particular has been in the news this past August in 2016 because the state has seen heroin overdose deaths triple from 2009 to 2014. And on August 15th, 2016, 27 people in this tiny West Virginia town called Huntington overdosed, one fatally, all because of a bad batch of heroin that was going around. Yeah. And if you look globally, opiate use has been pretty stable at about 17 million in 2014. But heroin trafficking has been on the rise. That's a lot of that's a lot of kind of scary statistics, a lot of scary numbers that more and more people are using heroin. Um, but what is it? So let's get into some Dare 101. Uh, hashtag 90s nostalgia. 
That's right. Does DARE still exist? DARE does still exist. DARE stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Oh. Yeah. And it had, you know, that there was the, the red letters, big DARE letters on a black background that I remember seeing so much around the same time when there were all those commercials, the PSAs about, this is your brain, egg. This is your brain on drugs. Egg cracked into the frying pan. Yeah, and there was the commercial with the woman in the tank top, and she was, like, smashing up the kitchen. Yeah. Was that also your brain on drugs? I think it was, and that was also specifically heroin, I want to say. Oof. Which brings us full circle. Although that doesn't sound much like heroin, which is a type of opioid derived from morphine. And did you know, Caroline, morphine is organic. <laughs> it's a naturally occurring substance extracted from the Asian opium poppies seed pod. And whether it's organic or not, uh, if you snort it, inject it, or smoke it, heroin gets to your brain really fast, meaning it is incredibly dangerous and incredibly addictive. So after that first injection, for instance... Users feel this rush of euphoria, and then they chase it after that first time. But the thing is, it will never feel the same after the first time that a person does heroin. Uh, what happens is that it hits your brain and converts to morphine. At that point, it then binds to your opioid receptors, which are what deal with pain and reward perception. Uh, and in your brainstem, those opioid receptors are involved in just like really minor things like blood pressure and breathing, you know, so what could possibly go wrong? Um, well, the thing is, when you're doing it over and over in order to chase that high, chase that feeling of euphoria, you build up a tolerance. So you need more and more to avoid withdrawal symptoms. And those withdrawal symptoms include things like restlessness, muscle and bone pain, uh, insomnia, diarrhea and vomiting. You might also get kicking movements and cold flashes. Uh, but basically what's happening during this point is that your brain's white matter is deteriorating. And this is affecting your decision making and your behavior regulation and stress responses. And when you overdose, your breathing becomes suppressed because your brain isn't getting enough oxygen, which can then lead to psychological and neurological effects, including permanent brain damage. Uh, we cannot overemphasize that heroin just is not good for you in any dose. Heroin is not safe. No. Please, please do not do heroin. Uh, because other side effects also include hepatitis and HIV, especially since you do get uh, the side effect of lowered decision-making and behavior-regulating skills. So uh, if you're sharing needles or engaging in risky sexual behavior, uh, people who use heroin also might experience collapsed veins, infection of the heart lining and valves, miscarriage, liver and kidney disease, and gastrointestinal problems on top of all of that. And that reminds me of something that CDC director uh, Dr. Tom Frieden told the New York Times about how when he was getting into medicine, the uh, AIDS epidemic was happening. And there was obviously like a lot of issues around shared needle use with that and how heartbroken he is to see mm -hmm. a similar issue happening all over again with yeah. shared needles. Yeah. People out there who listen to NPR, you might have heard the story. Uh, this was a couple months ago, maybe. There's a town in Indiana where heroin use has exploded and... In a parallel fashion, so has HIV, um, because there's a lot of people in this com particular community, and I can't remember what it is, but where they are living in poverty, they are sharing needles, and they are spreading disease as they abuse heroin. And that's why you're seeing more uh, the rise of more alternative approaches to heroin treatment that include needle exchange programs mm -hmm. where people, heroin addicts, can come in and get clean needles because the the logic is, well, you're still going to do the drug no matter what, but at least you can do it more safely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, talking about safety, we can't stress enough that heroin that you get off the street is very, 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 very likely to be laced with toxic additives, things that might clog your blood vessels, permanently damage your organs. Uh, one of the big things that people are talking about right now is fentanyl. That's in a lot, uh, not only heroin, but in a lot of street drugs. And fentanyl, for those of you who don't remember, is what killed Michael Jackson. It's like the surgical grade anesthesia that is not meant uh, for recreational use. 
So a question that we wanted to answer is why? Like what accompanies and precedes heroin use? Are there uh, predicting factors leading to this? And research finds that it is pretty linked with trauma, especially when it comes to women. There was a study published in 2014 in the International Journal of Drug Policy, which found that female drug users disproportionately are likely to have experienced physical and mental health problems, sexual abuse or domestic violence. Yeah, and both men and women did widely report parental divorce, family addiction, domestic violence, abuse, getting bullied at school, being in the foster care system. And while more women than men did discuss childhood physical and sexual abuse, there were plenty of male participants in that study who reported that they had been abused as children. And I mean, these researchers also note that while uh, on average, these are predicting factors, heroin addicts can also come from very affluent backgrounds with two parent households and relatively stable conditions. So it's not like living in poverty, um, growing up in poverty necessarily will lead you down this path, this path to heroin. But um, generally speaking, there are, you know, contributing factors to it. Yeah. And I mean, like Kristen said, trauma is a huge one. There was an Australian study uh, in 2005 of 615 heroin dependent people. And the researchers found that 92% of those had experienced trauma at some point in their lives, and 41% had experienced PTSD at some point in their lives, compared to the general population's experience with PTSD at just 7 or 8%. Um, and of those heroin users who had experienced PTSD in this study, the condition was chronic for most of them, and they had more extensive histories of using multiple drugs in addition to experiencing worse mental and physical health problems. And something linked to this issue of PTSD and trauma is dissociation. And Caroline, I was not expecting to run across that in our research. Um, so can you help me understand sort of what dissociation is and how it relates to all of this? Yeah, well, so first of all, women are way more likely to develop PTSD, according to this Australian study. Um, and dissociation is super commonly aligned with the development of PTSD. And this is basically when you have started a defense mechanism. It's when you separate yourself from your awareness of something. So to give it like a really mild, non-dangerous example, daydreaming is a, almost a type of dissociation. Like you're not aware of your surroundings. Have you ever gotten road amnesia where like you're driving somewhere and you look up and you're like, oh my God, it's been 15 minutes and I don't even remember the last couple of miles of my drive. I'm nodding vigorously to Caroline. Yes. Yeah, that is a type of dissociation. Um, it goes all the way up to its most severe and chronic form, which is multiple personality disorder. But basically, um, people who experience trauma... One of their primary defenses, especially as children, is dissociation. It's when you basically cannot deal with the circumstances around you, particularly in an abusive home. And so you kind of retreat into yourself. It's almost like you're watching a movie of yourself as a way to kind of insulate your brain, insulate your feelings so that you can sort of deal with this um, unhealthy situation around you. But the thing is, researchers are saying that trauma survivors' heroin use might actually be an attempt to reduce the earlier trauma's effects. And this is what they refer to as chemical dissociation versus the psychological dissociation that, you know, you will see children in abusive homes experience. And when it comes to adults, if you've never learned to deal with your trauma or, you know, face uh, difficult situations head on and overcome your habit, for lack of a better word, of dissociating from traumatic experiences, you might just continue to dissociate and that could potentially lead to multiple personality disorders. But it's all very wrapped up in trauma and then in heroin use. So is this a fancier term for self-medication? Yeah, basically, um, especially because it's also linked, heroin use is also linked to things like anxiety and depression. So there was this big Illinois study from 
2011, looking at heroin users in and around Chicago, particularly actually the around part. So a lot of them were in the suburbs. Uh, and they found that more than 75% of the sample self-reported or exhibited symptoms of mental health disorders like anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and ADHD. Uh, and they found that women were actually slightly more likely to have a co-occurring disorder. But the majority of the participants in that study said that heroin use provided them relief from their worries and anxieties because heroin, when you use it, when you abuse it, it provides both pain relief but also detachment from emotions. So it provides that chemical dissociation that those other researchers were talking to. And many of the people in that study also exhibited sensation-seeking behaviors, too. And that's a a point that we'll revisit later when we're talking about um, heroin's explosion in more rural settings. So if we look at this epidemic of heroin use that's happening right now and how it relates to the so-called War on drugs. Um, we see some changes in how it's portrayed, kind of who is representative of that and also how it's being approached. So first of all, the rise of heroin has been tied directly to the use of and more specifically the crackdown on prescription painkillers, particularly Oxycontin. Uh, 77% of recent heroin users say that they switched to heroin after first trying prescription painkillers. And uh, anecdotally, I was talking to a friend about this episode that we were about to come in and record. And she was saying, oh, absolutely. Uh, a family member of hers um started taking pills when he was in high school and he came from a very affluent family, went to a nice school and uh, very quickly the kids he was hanging out with were like, oh, you know what? These painkillers are fine, but have you ever tried heroin? I mean, it's, it's actually cheaper and, you know, you start snorting it and then next thing you know, he's in and out of rehab. Yeah, there's, I mean, not to like spoil the rest of the episode or anything, but I mean, there's a whole lot of like class and access issues wrapped up in this because, you know, it is way more, we don't have to tell you this, I mean, it is way more quote unquote socially acceptable to first take painkillers at all for anything because your doctor gives them to you. Presumably you've got insurance, you go to the doctor, you get your painkillers and then you just keep using them. And it it almost is like a fashionable thing. It's like going back to mommy's little helpers, you know, the the what is it, the Vicodin or Val- Valium? Valium from the 60s and 70s that that housewives were getting. Uh but at some point when that becomes too expensive, but but it's or, like or or if you're just chasing a different high, yeah, like it's okay to abuse painkillers because little heroin. That's what poor people do. But as we're seeing, like all of these weird classist assumptions about drug use and abuse are definitely flying out the window. Oh, I wouldn't say they're weird. I think more specifically they're just racist. Oh, yeah, for sure, just racist. <laughs> but this reminds me of what I was telling you a couple days ago when I was early in high school and uh, I was trying to impress a dude that I thought was cute by talking about weed and smoking weed. And he was like, you know, I'm really over that now. And I was like, oh, and he was like, yeah, I'm just more into pills. And I, you know, I was, I think, 16, maybe at the time and just slowly backed away. So I was like, I don't, you mean like ibuprofen? (laughs) Like, I don't, why? I don't understand it. But it's so, so common. And I'm talking to like a middle class white dude. Yeah. I'm, you know? s- I'm such like a sheltered goody two shoes, though. Like hearing someone if I had heard someone say that to me, I would have been like, but you don't know what it's going to do to you. Oh, well, I thought the same thing. I was like, why, why would you do that? Um, and what I would. So what if it's a blood thinner? <laughs> Or a diuretic. Uh, I would like to report, though, that both of these guys that I've just referenced are like fully recovered and they're both happily married oh, and good. doing great. So <laughs> good for them. Not everybody is. Uh, so if we look back at 2009, 
Uh, there were 257 million prescriptions for painkillers dispensed. And that was up 48% from just nine years earlier. And in 2010, enough painkillers were prescribed to treat all 242 million adult Americans around the clock for a month. In other words, reading between the lines, a lot of those painkillers were being diverted to illicit and illegal uses. Yeah, and when I first read those statistics, uh, I was astonished first and then wondering, how is it possible that so many painkillers are being prescribed? Oh, I have a story. Oh, okay. Well, a former coworker of mine um, at a previous job um, had surgery and she was given painkillers to deal with her surgery. And I'm not kidding you, dude. Like, you know, you, for anyone who's ever had surgery before, you get a certain amount of painkillers and maybe you can get them re-upped like once if you're, if the pain is really bad or if you get an infection or something that needs painkillers. Um, she was calling like twice a month and her doctor was refilling it every Time pill mills, total pill mill situation. Uh, she ended up getting fired for abusing painkillers at work, and and she was a middle class, middle aged white woman, and she had health insurance, and she had health insurance. Well, and, and we see though all of this spiking, particularly in more rural areas, because come to find out in the two thousands, you know, doctors. Uh, were having trouble directly treating issues in rural areas because they're more remote. And so they would just write a bunch of prescriptions for painkillers, just cover up the pain. Well, especially if you're spread thin, you know, you might be the only doctor in the area for for uh, for a long stretch. And so if you're overworked, if your patients are complaining of chronic pain... Or if maybe you're just not a great doctor or a responsible doctor. That too. But yeah, so more and more, though, women have been the ones abusing painkillers in particular, according to the CDC. Uh, Men still overdose on prescription painkillers more often, but the number of women who are dying from prescription drug overdoses jumped 400 percent between 1999 and 2010 compared to 250 percent for men. And that highest jump for prescription drug overdose death was among women 45 to 54. Uh, By 2013, every day, 18 women in this country were dying from prescription drug overdoses. And, uh, you know, the, the thing there in terms of going to your doctor, getting painkillers, and then developing an addiction, women are more likely to suffer from chronic pain. They are more likely to then be prescribed painkillers and for a longer amount of time. And we tend to develop dependency issues faster, particularly not only to opioids, but also to alcohol and marijuana, uh, thanks to physiological differences that separate us from menfolk. Uh, basically, that we just hold on to those substances in our systems longer. Just side note, I really appreciate your use of men folk. Yeah, and this like really serious <laughs> discussion. Yes, the men folk. Men folk. Uh, but another key factor to this puzzle is that the majority of overdoses happen when those prescription painkillers are combined with other depressants like alcohol or sedatives like Ambien and Xanax. You probably can see where this is going because women are twice as likely as men to have anxiety and 70 percent more likely to have depression, which means they get more of those medications, which means if they are also taking painkillers, they are more likely to experience dangerous drug interactions. And throughout all of this research, I kept thinking about Amy Winehouse and watching the Amy documentary, uh, which I, I do highly recommend if you are. Whether or not you are a, a Winehouse fan, um, because her official cause of death was alcohol. But like this, the majority of ODs are happening because you are mixing things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she had had, you know, problems with heroin and cocaine and like all sorts of other hard drugs as yeah. well. Well, especially if you are building up that tolerance. Because suddenly the amount that you're using is so much higher than what you started at, but you don't feel as good, so to speak. And considering those physiological sex differences, Mm -hmm. you know, with our tolerance being lower than men typically, whether we're talking about booze or something like heroin, you know, thinking about uh, Amy Winehouse before she died, I mean, she was 
tiny. She was yeah. already like a small woman, but she was just skin and bone. Yeah, and you know, we we've focused this this episode is focusing mainly on on women versus men, but we also have to talk about LGBTQ folks. They are nine and a half times likelier to use heroin than straight men and women. And a lot of that relates back to all those mental health co-occurring conditions we talked about earlier, anxiety and depression, things that stem from the daily exposure to homophobia, discrimination, the threat of violence. It's just one more thing that that community has to deal with. So as issues of, you know, this painkiller addiction epidemic started to uh, rise on regulators, radars, you have the crackdown on OxyContin. So the manufacturer has reformulated it to try to make it less habit forming. Um, and what happens is that if you now try to crush it up, it uh, turns into a, a gummy substance. And that is to discourage people from being able to snort it. But there was a story on NPR not too long ago where they did a whole series on the heroin epidemic and uh, they were shadowing a woman who had uh, the new Oxycontin pills and they've already figured out a way around, you know, the, the gummy stuff. I think that they now just uh, burn it. Oh, you know, and then smoke it. Yeah. So, well, because of those changes to the drug, that make it more difficult to abuse, you see black market pharmaceuticals price spiking. And basically, right after that, you see cartels moving into more rural areas, suburban and rural areas from places like New York, because suddenly there's a new market for heroin, and it's a wider and more diverse market than ever before. So that's where you get this explosion in these majority white rural areas, uh, they typically have police forces that are spread way too thin. Um, and like Vermont and New Hampshire are kind of leading the way in this, unfortunately. Um, and it was in an article in Rolling Stone that we were reading about this explosion in Vermont that cited one gay man who was like, dude, it is so boring up here. Like, I have no social life, no sex life, nothing. And that's not to, like, pin anything on on gay men, you know, certainly not. But there's that goes back to that whole sensation seeking attribute that we mentioned earlier, that whether you are gay, straight, whatever if you feel isolated and are looking for some change for change's sake, a lot of people are turning to drug use. I mean, and that's that's not surprising to hear. I mean, I think that you see that in smaller towns, even if we're just talking about alcohol. You know, it's yeah. like the image of, oh, what are we going to do? Let's just hang out in the Walmart parking lot and drink some 40s. You know, boredom. You telling me about your childhood, Conger? Uh, it was Cobra malt liquor and peach schnapps <laughs> and a cul-de-sac and not the Walmart parking lot. But yes, a little bit. Sounds like a country song. Oh, well, we were in a relatively country town, Carolyn. <laughs> Um, but this is something echoed by Matthew Birmingham, who is commander of the Vermont Drug Task Force, saying, I think he was speaking to Rolling Stone, saying that, listen, especially when we're young, there's that feeling of being removed from the world. And there's a lack of, you know, feeling like there are going to be consequences to what you're doing. You're almost invincible. Yeah, there is that that kiditude. 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 Lose the kiditude. Sometimes I need a little more kiditude. I, I know. There's a balance, definitely. Yeah, and Birmingham's uh, statement was echoed by Jesse Farnsworth, who works at the Howard Center, an organization that runs treatment clinics in Vermont. And Jesse just said that, you know, kids today don't feel like they're a part of anything. And when people feel isolated, it's easy to want an escape from reality. I mean, that's not saying that any person who feels isolated, bored or whatever is going to immediately turn to heroin. But when you do have this explosion of heroin alongside people who perhaps are already abusing painkillers or perhaps seeking a new experience, that's like a, that's a terrible combination of opportunity. And now that we have sort of laid out the general landscape of what's happening with 
the heroin epidemic, particularly in the United States and uh, international listeners, really interested to hear from you on this. In Canada, that includes you. Um, but we're going to take a quick break and come back and spend the rest of the episode really focusing on heroin as it relates to women. So in the 1950s, women made up just 20% of heroin users. But now we are a majority. We uh, make up more more than 50%. Yeah, that's a that's a gender gap that didn't need to be closed. No. I no. Uh and if you're looking at the average first-time heroin user, that person is most likely a 23-year-old white woman, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry in 2014. And uh, one fact that I hadn't really thought of that came up in that Rolling Stone article about the heroin epidemic is that you know, you have all these cartels and drug dealers moving into more suburban and rural areas from cities because they have all of these new markets that aren't really being policed uh, maybe as strongly as some of the urban markets. And they're recruiting a lot of these average 23-year-old fresh-faced white ladies to traffic a lot of their drugs because, like, because white privilege, I don't know, because police are less likely to look at some... um white girl and be like, oh, you must be trafficking heroin in your car. Speaking of traffic, doesn't the movie Traffic also have a plot line where it's the fresh-faced blonde white girl who is addicted to heroin? Oh, I don't know. I've never seen it. Finally, a movie you've seen that I, I, I've seen that you haven't? I know. Listeners, this is such a rare occurrence. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh it might not even be traffic, but I know there's a movie where where, the, where that is the case. Um, and it seems like, too, when we read about these white young women, it's also implied that they are cisgender and usually straight white young women yeah. as well. And I think that's part of the reason why people are so concerned about this, because it's like, oh, well, if. If these if these women are doing it, then it must be a problem. Yeah. And I mean, the other side of that, too, is that as that article pointed out, you know, because the heroin abuse epidemic is now aligning itself with what used to be the prescription painkiller epidemic. You know, you've got a lot of folks with disposable incomes who can afford to head off to rehab or can continue to get high without needing to resort to crime to get money to score their next batch of heroin. Or on the flip side of that, if your $40 a pill uh, Oxycontin or Vicodin or Percocet, whatever, is costing you too much, guess what's cheaper now? You know, heroin. So it's become a last resort for people who were hooked on painkillers but need something cheaper and more accessible but equally strong, if not stronger, so they go for heroin. Yeah, but ooh, but it's going to be laced with stuff, you guys, and it's going to get into your brain. I uh, please don't do heroin. Um, but but women are more likely to be introduced to heroin injection in particular by a sexual partner uh, and more likely to report feeling social pressure as a result, according to the National Institutes of Health. And that is what made me think of Amy Winehouse. Oh, yeah. With her her ex-husband, Blake, has now publicly said that Amy Winehouse first did heroin, you know, under his influence because he did it first and then they became uh, heroin addicts together. He claims that they were shooting up regularly for only in quotes, four months, and that she was actually worse when he was in jail. But as anyone who knows anything about Amy Winehouse and Blake Fielder Civil, is that his last name, uh, knows that you can trust what Blake says about as far as you can throw him, ditto her father. But of course, this isn't just a factor for celebrity couples. I mean, this is still the whole the whole issue of it being something that uh, happens in sexual relationships is a pretty common hallmark, especially when we're talking about women and heroin. Yeah. And when we are talking about women and heroin, we tend to do it in smaller doses, which could explain why men are still four times as likely to die from a heroin overdose than women are. Um, and earlier studies also, like from the 1990s, draw, drew some distinctions about how women use it. Uh, 
So not only, you know, are we likely to get it from a sexual or romantic partner who's also a drug user, but women are more likely to share needles and receive previously used injection equipment. And that's obviously a major red flag for the spread of disease. But going back to that 2014 International Journal of Drug Policy study, there was something, there was an attribute of this, of, of heroin use and abuse and dependency and recovery that I had not considered at all before, which is social pressures around appearance. So they found that both men and women tended to ignore personal appearance issues during those periods of heavy use. But regardless, women still remained more concerned about appearance, both during use and during recovery. And there was this big concern that as soon as they stop using and they're gaining that healthy weight back that they had lost when they were abusing drugs, that they were going to look fat. And so then you have the added layer on top of struggling in recovery. You've got the added layer of eating disorders that tend to surface among people who are afraid of getting fat versus the men who tended to like the added weight. They were like, yeah, I'm getting compliments on how healthy I look, so I must be getting better. So that's the weight gain for men was an encouraging and supporting factor to getting better. But for women, it was almost discouraging. Well, and then if we look at pregnant women, uh, no surprise here that heroin use is associated with low birth weight, uh, infants born dependent on heroin. Um, babies can suffer from neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is essentially when uh, babies are born going through drug withdrawal. And so they're crying constantly and are just in physical pain. Yeah. And the thing is, like speaking of the 90s, it really wasn't until around the 1990s that women's addiction issues in general got specific attention. And a woman-centric push was super necessary because that early addiction literature either ignored them or portrayed them as weak and insecure or somehow sicker and more disturbed than male addicts. And women, they found, have specific hurdles to support and treatment and getting recovery that includes social stigma. Ew, you're a bad woman or a bad mother if you let yourself get addicted to something. Uh, you've got issues of child care because, hello, women are more likely to be the ones responsible for it. So it's not like if you've got three kids but you're addicted to a substance, including heroin, you know, maybe you feel you can't stop everything and go to a center of some sort of recovery facility. Uh, you've also got issues of transportation and unemployment. You know, you might lose your job or uh, be unable to find a job when you're stopping everything to try to get recovered. Yeah, I mean, there there is that gendered stigma on female drug abusers, um, whether it's heroin or any kind of drug, because I think we do still perceive, you know, female uh, drug addicts as more deviant yeah. than men. It's like violating all of those feminine norms. Weren't we supposed to be the, the moral centers of society? Well, and if anything, the stereotype is that you are a Valley of the Dolls, like Mother's Little Helper, uh, Vicodin Valium user, you know, like it's okay to stay at home and take your little pink happy pill, but heroin, that's, that's like aggressive. Yeah. I mean, I also, yeah, I feel like anytime you have drug abuse and motherhood combined, mm-hmm. the stigma is doubled and tripled, but unfortunately it's often something that goes hand in hand. Yeah, and that uh, International Journal of Drug Policy study also pointed out the whole thing with appearance, and weight and drug using stigma, uh, all of that affects a woman's cultural capital. And that is, as we were talking about, a potential hurdle to recovery. Uh, they wrote that if society has more onerous expectations of women than men in terms of their appearance, behaviors, or caring obligations to others, this is likely to place more material and psychological demands on women in recovery. So basically, like, don't forget to smile. I'm saying that as a stand in for like, make sure that you're thin and pretty and a good mother and that you're healthy and that you've got a job. Uh, All of these extra expectations, like don't forget to put on your lipstick. A plus side when it comes to gender and drug abuse, though, is that the same study we've been citing a lot found that women do report more informal support, uh, having an easier time making non-user friends and are likelier to say that their kids motivate them 
to kick the habit and stay clean. Yeah, and there's actually, I mean, speaking of women and kids, there's a great example of treatment coming out of Iowa. It's this place called the Heart of Iowa. It's a residential program for women with kids. Uh, it doesn't only treat heroin users. It treats women with a variety of substance abuse issues. But it's been around for like 20 years. Um, it was created in response to a high percentage of women who were opting out of residential treatment facilities because they didn't want to have to abandon their children to foster care. Uh, there are fewer than 12 programs like this in Iowa, which means there's a huge waiting list, which, of course, can complicate recovery. Um, there are other programs that you have to be like a certain amount pregnant. <laughs> you have to be like a certain amount into your pregnancy before they'll accept you. So that like dead space of having to wait until you're somehow pregnant enough to go into the facility can also complicate recovery. But at this heart of Iowa place, I mean, the women have full days from 830 to 7 at night. Um, they have a comprehensive curriculum where they can learn strategies for relapse prevention, even how to quit smoking, but also how to budget and and parenting skills. They can attend group therapy, individual counseling. And the facility even has like an outreach branch that can also reach the partners and or spouses of these women in different facilities so that there's a more holistic whole family approach to recovery. But I mean, they also get mental health counseling, life skills training, on-site childcare, and and most importantly, those furnished on-site apartments that let the women have the dignity of a private space that they can return to at night after the day is over. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like like the ideal situation for a, an accessible rehabilitation facility. Not, not not talking about like a celeb rehab, you know, bazillions of dollars yeah. kind of place. But unfortunately, I mean, all of that relies so much on how many, you know, how much government funds are available to make that happen. And a lot of times the answer is there's... There's not too much, especially as the demand is increasing. Um, and that leads us to questions about medication for treatment, because you have methadone, which is probably the uh, heroin treatment medication we're most familiar with. Um, there's also a newer one called buprenorphine. Uh, there's also naltrexone that act on the same parts of the brain that heroin does. Uh, but both methadone and buprenorphine suppress withdrawal symptoms and relieve cravings. Uh, now, Trexone blocks those opioid receptors. And if I'm recalling correctly, one big difference between methadone, which can be addictive, mm-hmm. um, and buprenorphine is that uh, buprenorphine does not, uh, it blocks the same like drug and reward pathways mm-hmm. that methadone does that can lead to more uh, addiction. Right. And there's questions, too, you know, when you talk about um, parents, women with children of whether methadone and buprenorphine are safe for pregnant women. And methadone is definitely still the preferred and recommended treatment, although it is associated with that neonatal abstinence syndrome that can affect newborns. And there was actually a 2010 study that found that compared with methadone, buprenorphine was actually better than methadone in reducing those withdrawal symptoms in newborns. But a lot of doctors are, are uncomfortable using it just because it's it hasn't been as extensively used in pregnant women. So there's still some question. Um, you also have naloxone, which is used as an emergency treatment to counteract the effects of an OD. And there have been a lot of articles and NPR segment segments, for instance, that I've heard about police forces and outreach groups carrying shots of naloxone with them. So if they encounter someone on the street who is experiencing an overdose, they can inject them with this rather than just either letting the person die or shipping them off to jail immediately. Yeah. So speaking of jail, I mean, this is such a complicated issue when it comes to pregnant women, um, pregnant addicts in particular, uh, because you have states like Tennessee, which in 2014 became the first state to pass a law that would punish drug addicted pregnant women. So pregnant women who take narcotics can be charged with aggravated assault to their fetus. But it has no targeted drug treatment programs for pregnant women rather than treating the issue. You're just sending them to jail. Yeah. And that eh, it's not going to solve 
anything. And NPR, we keep referencing NPR. This episode was brought to you essentially by like Morning Edition and Marketplace. <laughs> um, because uh, I believe it was on Marketplace or either that or All Things Considered. I forget because they come on back to back every evening here in Atlanta. Uh, but they did a whole heartbreaking but such important series on these women who are, are become addicted to heroin. They become pregnant and they have to make this choice between going to the doctor and them finding out that they are addicts and then them being sent off to jail or trying to manage their addiction through a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when they deliver, if they go deliver at a hospital, they might be, you know, risking being uh, arrested as well. Yeah, the article that we were reading about that Tennessee law made the very important point that the state's that punish pregnant women who are addicted to drugs or alcohol tend to be the states that lack any sort of supportive treatment program for such women. It's not like, oh, well, we're going to try to treat you. And if you're still abusing medication, then we'll send you to jail because we tried our best. There's there's no try, try harder. And again, it's just punish the pregnant women for what they're doing to their fetus. And since the heroin epidemic has uh, been so predominant among white people, you have more white middle class families publicly raising their voices against tough war on drugs policies, advocating for classifying heroin dependence as a disease, not a crime. Uh, and they're lobbying state houses, holding rallies and starting nonprofits. And uh, it's, Quite a shift from what a lot of white middle class families thought about tough war on drugs policies when a lot of the people being arrested were people of color. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a complete 180. Yeah. Because now you're having more of these white families losing uh, family members to heroin, whether it is death, an overdose or whether it is going to prison. Uh, The White House drug czar, Michael Botticelli, uh, was very explicit. He was like, yeah, these people know how to call a legislator. They know how to get angry with their insurance company. They know how to advocate. And they have been so instrumental in changing the conversation. And it's interesting to see the effect these families are having in this push to move heroin abuse away from being a crime and more toward a disease. You know, we cited that 2011 study out of Illinois at the top of the podcast It was actually, I mean, yes, it was done by a foundation, but it was actually funded by, like, parents and grandparents. They helped fund this investigation into use and abuse of heroin by suburban people. Uh, And, you know, they found all of these important aspects of it about, like, young people who don't see the consequences of their heroin use and abuse about sensation seeking among young people in suburban areas. And, I mean... Where was that for the crack epidemic or really any other drug epidemic, including heroin 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, that just throws all of the classism and racism wrapped up in our drug policies into stark relief. I mean, and and drug czar Botticelli called it like he saw it. I mean, he said, quote, because the demographics of people affected are more white, more middle class. These are parents who are empowered. Yeah. So, I mean, I absolutely support the concept of classifying heroin dependence and other drug dependencies as diseases and treating them as such Mm -hmm. um, and steering away from the criminality aspect of just throwing them in prison and letting taxpayers pay far more for imprisoning them than it costs to treat Mm -hmm. people. Um, But I think we also have to take a step back too and ask that question that you just did of like, well, why are we suddenly paying attention to this now? And maybe we need to also uh, spread these resources and all of this interest, not only to white heroin addicts in suburbia, but also to more inner city areas that have drug problems, but they don't have all of those well-funded grandparents who can somehow contact a foundation and pay for a study. Yeah. 
And this is something that Kimberly Williams Crenshaw brought up. She specializes in racial issues at Columbia and UCLA law schools. She is also, if you're like, that name sounds familiar to me as a Sminty listener who's well-educated and curious about life. Uh, Crenshaw also introduced intersectionality to feminist theory. Hello. But she says this new turn to a more compassionate view of those addicted to heroin is welcome. But one cannot help notice that had this compassion existed for African-Americans caught up in addiction and the behaviors it produces, the devastating impact of mass incarceration upon entire communities would never have happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, like there there are so many aspects of of privilege coming up in this. And and again, it's not to say like, oh, well, white people don't deserve any help for their drug addiction. But it's like we've got to look at the whole system because the whole system is broken um, and how you have a lot of these um, activist parents who have lost children to heroin epidemics, um, even just paying attention to language, mm-hmm. uh, preferring to use words like addict in lieu of junkie. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and um I mean, one thing I want to say about all of this, too, is um, as it also kind of relates to issues with STDs and herpes, things Mm -hmm. that are really common, but highly, highly, highly stigmatized Mm -hmm. um, because of a lot of misunderstanding and silence around it. Heroin um, doesn't necessarily connote a homeless person you know, prone to crime sitting on the corner. Yeah, as, yeah, most drugs don't necessarily connote that. Right, and we need to re, you know, and we need to collectively shift our mindsets away from that because in a lot of ways it is very classist and prejudiced. Because I have seen heroin. I've seen it at a party with my own eyes and seen people who are on heroin. And I have known people who have gone to rehab for heroin. Um, and all of those people I'm talking about are white, middle class, and a lot of them college educated. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, we talk about the important shifts that we need and the demographic shift is behind a lot of changing policies. I mean, you know, Vermont heroin use is now so concentrated in that tiny state of Vermont that their governor, Peter Shimlin, for instance, is now expanding treatment programs and helping addicts get into those programs instead of just sending them to prison. And these are tactics that on the national level, people are starting to take notice of and saying, oh, maybe we do need to treat the root causes of addiction. We need to focus our money and energy and effort on mental health counseling and support. We need to understand mental health and trauma better. We need to support people who have been led to abuse substances rather than treating them as criminals, because that doesn't really throwing people into jail does not fix any of these root causes. We zeroed in on trauma early in the podcast because it's important to talk about that, because trauma doesn't only affect someone, you know, in a poor area of town. Trauma cuts across Every type of demographic. And so uh, as does the use of multiple kinds of drugs, which is also a predictor for heroin use. I mean, this is nothing that's exclusive to one demographic. Yeah, I mean, and especially when it comes to heroin and opiate addiction, your chances for relapse are so high that if we treat it, you know, solely by tossing them in jail, you're going to have a high recidivism rate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to happen. And I mean, treating it more as an addiction and a health issue is going to be more cost effective overall for all of us because Mm -hmm. these are our taxpayer dollars paying for it because you have to remember that this is not an individual problem. One person's, one woman's uh, heroin addiction can potentially be the spoke in, you know, a whole wheel of issues such as sex work and STDs and childcare and on and on and on. I mean, we're we're a community here. We're all affected by this. And like just stigmatizing this one group and saying like, oh, they're just broken, horrible people. Just get them out of my sight. Like just because we don't see them doesn't mean that the problem goes away. Exactly. And that's why you see like in uh, places like Seattle, which I think is the first to try this, maybe uh, Vancouver also in Canada. But 
Uh, the Seattle mayor has actually backed opening safe consumption sites for addicts, uh, places where um, you can get clean needles and supervision and anti-OD medications. Um, but basically, you know, addiction and criminal records can keep a lot of addicts out of shelters and out of facilities and things like that. Um and so, like, how is that helping anyone? Because then you are likely to see the domino effect of, you know, staying on the streets, continuing to uh, potentially use unsafe needles and practices, um, getting jailed for your drug use. And and the cycle just continues. So it'll be interesting to see what the effects are if if this Seattle safe consumption site thing goes through. Well, and that's also going to depend on what local communities decide on, because it might have been in West Virginia or Vermont. This was something that came up in that Rolling Stone article where uh, a rehab facility specifically for heroin, like a treatment center, was going to open in the small town where there had been a massive problem with heroin. But the people living there like vetoed it because they're like, we don't want that here. We don't want those, you know, just attracting more addicts where it's like, Ooh, that's so this, backwards. I know. And that's the stigma at work. And I, I, I mean, I want to hear from listeners about this because I'm sure there are so many complexities to this issue, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to treatment um, that we haven't acknowledged. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just want to open this up now to listeners to share what you think, especially because we have such a geographically diverse audience mm-hmm. that we probably have people listening right now who are in towns and areas where heroin has become more of a problem um, or if you are in an area where you've had uh, successful treatment systems set up um, or if you just know someone who's dealt with this. We want to hear everything that you'd like to share with us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, I have a letter here from Sarah. Uh, she was writing into us in response to our libido liberation episode where we talked to Maria Finizzo, who's a filmmaker. Um, and she wants to write us about the misconception about uh, the immaculate conception. And Sarah was not the only person to write in about this. So I definitely wanted to address this uh, point that she made. She said, I wanted to point out a mistake that many people make with the term immaculate conception. Many people believe that this refers to the sex-free conception of Jesus that preserves Mary's virginity. This would be the doctrine of incarnation. However, the immaculate conception actually refers to the conception of Mary herself. Mary was conceived by normal biological means by her parents, but God made it so that she was free from original sin because she would later become the mother of Jesus Christ. In Catholic doctrine, original sin is something that all men and women are born with as a result of the disobedience of Adam and Eve and their fall from Eden. While a big to-do is made about Mary being a virgin when she gives birth to Jesus, the Immaculate Conception is a reference to her own purity and elevation above all other mortal men and women. This is what makes her worthy of being the mother of Christ and of holding a very high place of reverence within the Catholic Church. My mother was raised a strict Catholic. While she no longer considers herself one, she still has a strong respect for many of their philosophies. She was the first person to point out to me that so many people don't use the Immaculate Conception correctly. I find theology fascinating and loved reading about this after she corrected me. Keep up the good work. I look forward to diving into your latest podcast about Lisa Frank. Oh, Sarah. Speaking of Lisa Frank, and then therefore speaking of unicorns, I hope that you also find our conversation about unicorns and Jesus and purity and virginity interesting in that episode as well. Oh, man. Jesus and unicorns. What a combo. Uh, I have a letter here from a Kristen with a K about our episode on exercise and breasts. Subject line, army boobs. She writes, I was in the army for eight years and always struggled with the classic army activity of running. It took about two years of running with massive groups of people, primarily men, before I was alerted to what was holding me back. One day after a rough run, a senior ranking man came up to me and said these life-changing words. Listen. 
None of these other guys are going to tell you this, but you need to know. Your run sucks because you're cradling your boobs instead of pumping your arms, and you don't even realize it. I took a quick jog to see if he was right, and by golly, he was. I felt like I was pumping my arms, but I was actually cradling my C-slash-D cups with my forearms. I quickly went and got myself some new, better-fitting sports bras, and my runtime immediately improved. Huh. What do you know? And hey, you know what? Red dude alert for, like, talking to a woman about her breasts in a respectful manner. And pulling her aside. Yeah. yeah. And not shaming her. Ugh. Man, well done, dude. Uh, she says, I love you, ladies, and thanks for what you're doing. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Kristen, because um, I have a feeling that uh, that might set off a light bulb in some other runners' ears as they're hearing this. And now I'm curious about my running form. Uh, but if you have any tips to share with us on running or just anything at all, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about women and the heroin epidemic, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 